Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast. Sustainable leadership is a hot topic right now, but what does it actually mean and why should we care? Well, in today's episode, I'll be interviewing Clark Murphy about sustainable leadership. Clark is currently a partner at the leadership advisory firm, Russell Reynolds Associates, where he has served as their CEO for the past 10 years. Now, Clark is dedicated to helping CEOs and boards embrace the sustainability agenda and use their position to solve the greatest social and economic challenges of our time. Now, today, Clark will share several actionable insights from his new book, Sustainable Leadership, Lessons of Vision, Courage, and Grit from the CEOs who dare to build a better world. Now, before we get started, please click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis. Let's get started. In today's rapidly changing world, it's more difficult than ever for organizations to keep up. That's why I'm excited to invite you to the Navigating Uncertainty Summit on October 14th at Clemson University. You'll learn from the most innovative thinkers in a day of inspiration and make cross-industry connections that will help you adapt to the modern world. Register now at 2022summit.ageofpersonalization.com. The 2022 season of Personalization Outbreak Podcast is brought to you by City of Hope, a world leader in the research and treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other life-threatening diseases. City of Hope has been ranked among the nation's best hospitals in cancer by U.S. News and World Report for over a decade. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Clark. So great to have you. Really appreciate your time today. Well, pleasure to be here and appreciate talking about something this important. Fantastic. Well, hey, look, as you know, we're in the age of personalization and we're trying to find ways to modernize old, outdated standards. And if there's one of them that we have to modernize quickly is a true understanding of what sustainability really means and that, you know, leaders, as you put it, uh, don't have to choose between, you know, profit. Uh, and growth. So um, let's talk about sustainability in your own experiences, uh, Clark. I mean, you understand sustainability well beyond a business. Uh, can you please share how your own personal journey uh, helped you understand the importance of sustainability? Well, <laughs> you, uh, you start with a, a funny but kind of near tragic story. Um, so I spent a lot of my life and have my whole life on the ocean um, from from a young childhood. And I've crossed the Atlantic seven times and, and uh, raced in various parts of the world. And in one of those races, um, we were about three 
quarters of the way across the North Atlantic, we'd been in fog for four or five days. And in two previous races, we had hit whales, unfortunately, uh, though everyone turned out okay. So we were very sensitive to this. We're coming out of the fog. It's early in the morning. I see a whale breaching about 150 yards in front of us. I'm at the wheel, and we're going about 15 or 16 knots, which is very fast in a sailboat uh, on relative terms. I scream whale, flip the boat to the windward side, and, and, and in essence, put this huge sailboat into a kind of a skid across the top of the ocean. We miss the whale by probably 10 or 12 feet, and as we pass it, we see that it's not a whale. It is a 40-foot uh, steel container covered in barnacles, and the top is kind of bleached white, which means it had been there in the ocean for a very long time. And if you hit a container, you die, because the whole boat goes down in two or three minutes because the hole is so big. Uh, we were speechless. One of the French guys on the boat literally tears up, having known he almost died. Um, and you step back from that and you get away from what happened afterwards. There's some, some damage to the boat in other ways. And you think about, you know, we're talking about plastic in the ocean and trash and, and, and on the earth or the, uh, anywhere. And steel containers kind of bring it all home. There's tens of thousands of them floating around. So in that moment, you kind of go, okay, this is real. What the hell are we going to do about it? And it began a long, both internal, inward reflection, as well as an outward journey of, okay, I'm in the leadership business. What can we do? You know, it's, it's incredible how someone's personal experience or even, you know, uh, close to death experiences kind of shape our purpose. And by the way, uh, this goes back to making sure that leaders don't have to decide between profit and purpose. Uh, I want to make that correction. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is talk about taking this platform of yours around sustainable leadership to a whole other level. So, if you take that story that you just shared into consideration, Clark, why is sustainability a core leadership competency now? Well, exactly. It's become one. And in fact, we're doing uh, two long-term CEO successions in Europe, which is a little bit ahead of us in this concept, hmm. where this pharmaceutical company and this luxury goods company, both of them, their uses of water or raw materials and the luxury goods or gold or leather, et cetera. You know, they, have, they, have, they have pretty ugly sustainable footprints, which they admit. And they said, we want to add to the normal leadership competencies around decisiveness and action orientation, uh, uh, et cetera. We want to add sustainable competencies, track them and measure them of those who might run the company next with your help so that we will pick a sustainable, successful commercial leader, not just a successful commercial leader. So it's actually happening right now. We also did a, uh, a research project with the United Nations Global Compact a couple of years ago to determine, are those sustainable, successful leaders, are they built differently hmm. than successful leaders? And we chose, the, we agreed upon uh, the 55 pioneers, we call them, who, were, who had embedded sustainability into their culture and operations with success and profits. We interviewed them. We assess them, test it, and guess what? They are different. Um, and their competencies around dealing with complexity, conceptually dealing with complexity, longer-term activation, disruptive innovation, far beyond how we use some of those words today, that they were built differently. Hmm. So if we can help boards and 
CEOs, which we're now doing, to, to identify those people based on those competencies sooner in their career and accelerate from hundreds and hundreds of sustainable leaders to tens of thousands, then we're going to make more progress faster because I, I believe the private sector will, will, has been and will be the differentiator versus governments. So we wrote the book to accelerate this, this leadership uh, wave. So help us understand, Clark, maybe some of the differences between those that are sustainable leaders. Well, what, what, are the, what distinctions do they carry? Yeah. So, so I'll, t- I'll take two of the competencies of the four, just, just for brevity. But, and some of the words you've heard before, like stakeholder inclusion, you're like, yeah, conference board, stakeholders, shareholders. Yeah, I've heard that. No, no, no. We're saying stakeholder inclusion is including your competitors mm. or your regulators in trying to make substantive change and progress. So, so what's an example? Mayors shipping, they decide to, to produce green-fueled supertankers. They commit $2 billion to building supertankers on clean fuel because bunker fuel is ultimately the dirtiest fuel in the world that drives ships around the ocean. And, and uh, Soren Scal, the CEO, says, listen, we don't create value in the engines. We create value in, in how we price and how we travel and how we offload and how we transport, et cetera, in our systems. So let's work together because we're not competing on the engine design. So they've created a consortium with the Singaporean government, SAS, Orsted, uh, Renewable Fuels, Yara um, uh, Fertilizer, which puts off a lot of uh, methane to create a clean methanol, et cetera. So stakeholder inclusion kind of blows your mind. I would never include my competitors in something I'm doing. Well, if you don't change the world, maybe you will. Okay. Uh, And the second one, I would say, is disruptive innovation. Again, innovation for the last 20 years, it's the hallmark. We know that, Clark. No big deal. No, we're saying disruptive innovation where you have to challenge your own assumptions as a leader, everything you've ever known about your industry, to say, what if I'm wrong? Or what if I'm not looking at it? What if I have personal bias? Um, And when you fail, you don't say, oh, see, it didn't work. You say, okay. We're so committed to disruptively innovating to, to change the footprint. We got to keep going. W- what else can we do differently? These yeah. are aspects. And then there are, there are uh, testable, identifiable ways to see who, ha- who is higher in these competencies or innately has them than mm-hmm. other executives to identify them and develop them more quickly. Yeah. Well, as I, it's interesting because the two that you described are, they're very interconnected, aren't they? Yes, they are. I mean, this kind of goes back to this concept of, you know, we're all solving for the same things, just packaged differently. Like there's this convergence happening across industries now. And the question is, why do we always feel like we have to stay in our own lane as opposed to recognizing that all we have is human capacity? What are we going to do with it? And it's more sustainable to, again, uh, be much more interconnected and interdependent on the success of each other so that we all serve one another's sustainability. Do I get that right? You do. And, and we have a chapter in the book, which which we call ecosystems, which is how do we, so partnerships are going to make the difference. Partnerships are hard. Sustainable progress is hard. Not saying it's it's easy. It's hard. And it's not a straight line. There will be success, failure, obstacles, failure, success, obstacles, failure. So, so 
leveraging partnerships, leveraging ecosystems of, of within industries or across industries, and there are examples, really accelerate progress. And, and the goal of the book and at the end of every chapter is our takeaways. Like, what does Glenn do this week, this quarter, this year, or this project over multiple years that I can learn from others' mistakes or other successes? I'm going to take it away and do it. And I think ecosystems and partnerships is one of those. Well, it seems to me that this is something that if we all were, you know, focused with proper intention, then it shouldn't be so hard. You know, it, it just seems to me that, look, if we are, if we have this recognition of what we know and what we don't know and what we should know, shouldn't it make it a little bit easier? I mean, we talk about sustainability in the, and we associate it with things like climate and climate change, but why is it so much more than that? But also, why do you think that this next generation of leaders are more apt to be almost you know, designed to propel sustainability forward? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, uh, sustainability to me is an umbrella okay, that covers a number of things. People tend to focus quickly and maybe controversially on climate change alone. Yep. But uses of water, hunger, uh, uh, equity, uh, equity, social justice, um, consumer, you know, uh, con consumption. These are all under the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. And I look at sustainability, as does the book, in the full umbrella, number one. Number two, I think this next generation has grown up, obviously, in a different world and a different mindset. We know that this is number one on their priority list. They will also inherit more wealth than in the history of the world, and they will put that to work. Hmm. They're also showing they'll put their feet to work if they don't believe in the company for whom they work today. So I, I think there's unique opportunity. And we did a piece of research I won't go into now called Divides and Dividends, which shows the divide between what senior executives think they're getting done yeah. And what the Gen Z and millennials think is actually happening, that's a problem. But a number of these millennials have already worked on two or more sustainable initiatives in their companies, kind of nights and weekends. They're action-oriented. And I think where you started is, why does it feel so hard? Well, it is hard. Why? Because it seems so big. It seems yeah. I've got to eat, you know, uh, the, the whole bar at once when you really just have to take a small bite to start. Action is more important than perfection. So true. Yet still too many people feel fear the action um, as it may expose their That's inability right. to, right. make an, to make a difference. In other words, we call it being stuck in standardization, that the only thing you know that's is those things are right in front of you rather than seeing the broader picture around you. So on that note, why is there some pushback recently on ESG investing? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a lot of pushback. I think it's, uh, first of all, this, the term ESG, okay, evokes passion. And I think maybe there's, uh, there's a little politicization of this term. Uh, and, I, and again, I look at ESG as a set of metrics, which is very important in the umbrella of sustainability. It is not the umbrella. That's the first confusion. Okay. Mm. And if we look at it measurable because we need to show measurable success. Measurement's okay. 
We might have too many measurements right now, but that's okay. Uh, the second is um, institutional investors were preaching. They were telling boards of directors and companies what they had to do to be considered a successful company. That's getting way out in the end of the limb, and somebody's starting to saw the limb now. Mm-hmm. So institutional investors, and I think there's a barbell of where pressure comes from on sustainability. At one end is boards of directors who say, we have to be good governors. More sustainable operated companies are more highly valued, and the investors are there. At the other end are consumers and employees saying, I'll buy from or work for a great company. So right. the barbell is, is putting the pressure on. So I think the pushback is about being preached to, hmm. but not about the ultimate results desired by investors, boards, employees, or consumers. And that will win out over time. Well, isn't the same dynamic happening now with well-being programs, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion? I mean, isn't there some intersection between these three initiatives that are putting a lot of pressure, not just on investors and boards, but, uh, you know, senior leaders and organizations. Yeah. I, I, listen, at Russell Reynolds, we see this, the, the war for talent is predicted 20 years ago by McKinsey demographically has begun. And then you throw in a pandemic, right? So, so the, the war for talent said, we're going to focus on the wellness. We're going to make you all these aspects of you loving to work here or to be in a community or to create communities. That's all kind of coincided with sustainability and the realization, if you think about it, it's really come home to roost in the last three or four years, whether it's bushfires in Australia, rainforests in, in, in the Amazon, uh, unusual weather patterns, to say the least. So the realization, and these things have all come to a head at the same time, right. which lands in the desk of the CEO or the board, and, they've, and maybe they've over-indexed towards some of this. And then that's created tensions uh, within organizations. So how do we start solving for critical barriers that are actually preventing companies from, you know, turning the sustainability pledges into everyday practices? So great question. So so one of the chapters in the book we talk about is what I call 100 percenters, mm-hmm. which are the executives or leaders that need to make sure they have solved. Of 100% of the potential challenges and obstacles uh, to take to take the first step. And they are the ones farthest behind. Because at some point, you have to start on something and begin making progress instead of solving for everything. Uh, Julie Sweet of Accenture says, don't uh, let that perfection get in the way of progress when it comes to sustainability. I think that's a pretty good quote. Uh, and you need to embody the vision and the goals before you can embed in a culture. So pick your spot as a company or a leader, measure it. It's okay. You want to show progress. It's not a straight line uh, and you have to take action. And I think, and, and that creates the followership of the company or the investors or the board to begin making more progress. So don't be afraid to be visible. Uh, and to show measurement. You know, last when we were preparing for this interview, Clark, remember you shared with me, you know, it's not about getting hundreds to uh, commit themselves to sustainability. It's about getting hundreds of thousands. That's right. That's How right. do we scale this? 
Well, at the scale has already begun, I think. And I think some of the more successful companies uh, do have scale, uh, whether it's Heineken or, or, or uh, Mayor Shipping or Orsted or Duke Energy or any number of companies, PepsiCo. So I, I think there is momentum. I think indecision hmm. or uncertainty. And guess what? The ones with more momentum already have started looking at revenue increases and decreased costs. So this big question is, oh, if it's tougher economic times, is it going to fall by the wayside? Well, the ones who committed are showing progress before tough times. And now if they've lowered their water usage or their power usage or something else, they're seeing the benefits and they're going to roll ahead of those who kind of kept talking but not acting. So so I think there is a lot of momentum for those who, who committed to action already. But I also think that one has to see you can increase revenue, you can you can reduce costs by many of these things. They're not separate uh, feel-good activities. So what do you say, let me throw something at you. So yeah. let's say it's time to discuss third quarter results and we're projecting yeah. that year-end is going to come in at, let's say, 90% of plan, but that's still a you know 2% growth over last year. But yet we're at 35% into our sustainability strategy. Versus coming in to say, hey, we're going to be at you know 100% of plan with no sustainability strategy. Who's winning, A or B? If you want long-term employee retention, if you want long-term investors in your company, then you must act in the long term. And this was, is, and will be long-term. Though, as, as one CEO said to me, who's in the agribusiness world, we only have eight harvests before we can't make as much impact. Eight harvests. Hmm. That kind of focuses the mind. Yeah. So, so um, and, and the other thing is, I, I think if you look at the private equity firm's commitments, all of the largest private equity firms in the world are, are collections of private capital, could be credit or equity, um, have, have hired in the last four or five years quietly, without proclamation, heads of sustainability to work with their portfolio companies. Mm. They, they have historically provided higher risk-adjusted returns than public companies. And they think you win by investing in more sustainable operations and company cultures. So they get a higher value mm. and they sell their companies eventually to give returns to their investors. So the private capital world has gone long and deep on this because it's a higher valuation. Right. And as Henry Fernandez, who runs MSCI, said to me, he said, externalities always get priced into companies. Mm. We cannot ignore externalities, whatever the yipping and yapping back and forth is. So you damn well better price the externalities into the company and you should act on them or you will lose competitively. So it is, you know, I, I think it's happening. You know, I certainly hope so, <laughs> because if there's a time to start thinking this way, it's right now. Yeah. I mean, it can't get any more uncertain than this, I would think. And I only say that because it comes back to why we even do this podcast to begin with. It's we have to find this balance between the old ways of doing things and looking at how individuals and individuality is really reshaping the future, not just from an employee perspective, but from a consumer uh, perspective, you'd think that we were aware of this in knowing the role that sustainability plays. So how do we get there, Clark? 
Well, luckily, a lot of individuals have stepped forward as leaders. Um, <laughs> this is the basis for all the research. And then the book is supporting, identifying, developing, measuring, and rewarding those individuals who show the leadership either at a junior level as a millennial. In the last chapter of the book, we call it the nudgers, which yeah. we added at the end because it was so important, uh, to develop and accelerate the development of tens of thousands of sustainable leaders to, to, to race against the eighth harvest. You know, I, I, I connect with that harvest uh, analogy. I, I myself had a food business with growers in Mexico. And I, <laughs> when, when you look at things on the ROI of a harvest, yeah. you begin to see things so much clearer. You begin to uh, value each seed and its yield, That's <laughs> much right. like people, right? That's just right. You, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. That is what the boardrooms and the CEOs are trying to do is seed and develop the next harvest of great leaders, except do it faster. Exactly. Exactly. So as we wrap this up, what are your final comments around not just sustainable leadership, but why people should buy your book? Because I'm telling you, they should be buying them in in blocks. Well, you're you're timing is perfect. It's a great good, read. You're a good person. Uh, I think you know there there are many a generation of business books that have gathered dust and the spine never been opened. This is a pragmatic. What can you do to either accelerate your career or, as a chief executive, accelerate your company? With very pragmatic takeaways, um, and there are stories of success and failure where the chief executive said, quote me, tell my story uh, from, from Singapore to Scandinavia to San Francisco. And, and these are the stories of success and failure that you should learn from and go put into action this year, now, uh, to accelerate your career and the progress against the eighth harvest. Well, look at Clark, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for the dedication that you've put behind this book that is a must read. And, you know, as we both know, opportunities are everywhere, yet few have eyes to see them. Yeah. And, you know, th this is the time for people to open their eyes uh, to see those opportunities before circumstances force their hand. You got it. So as we close every show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you very much, Clark. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate being here. All the best. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, Change is merely substitution, not evolution. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org.